Once governments determine their next term of office and our futures by dwelling on economic indicators such as GDP, the gross domestic product. When the opinion polls dipped, those special advisers could be heard to mutter to the Prime Minister or President, it's the economy, stupid. High growth meant jobs, and with work goes housing, holidays, schools, health, and your so called lifestyles. Relatively crime free. That all began to change a decade ago when some could be heard to mutter that measurements of well being show that after a certain level of income is attained, we don't necessarily get any happier. Here in the UK, the measurement of well being indicators began in the early 1970s. Economic growth. And more money doesn't always make us happy, but if we connect, be active, take notice, keep learning, give, we will smile that bit more often, it seems. Nick Marks is founder of the Centre for Wellbeing and fellow at the New Economics Foundation. Costa Rica has it all. Most people, I think, seem to feel that、uh, the indicators we have of economic progress are disconnected from their lives. And we know this from surveys around Europe that people don't think life is progressing as much as GDP would say it was. And we need to start to unpick this about getting indicators which are closer to people's actual experience of life. So I think well being is absolutely central to that. And what do we know about well being? You said that we started to measure it in 1972. So it's a recent and new discipline. Yeah, so well being is、um, a predominantly academic phrase, particularly subjective well being, which basically means about people's lived experience, the quality of their lives. But it's actually asking people questions in surveys, so it's making people the subject of the questions. That's why it's often called subjective. And,、um, and we have got data going back to the 1970s,、uh, some in, from the 60s indeed, you know, particularly on a question called life satisfaction, which has been relatively flat since then in the UK. And, and why is that? Do we know how accurate are these measures of well being? How do they compare with other countries who, who measure their well being? Aren't we in Britain a grumbly lot? So if you ask us and say, Good day, how are you? We say, Not too bad. Whereas, you know, in Costa Rica, which you say is happier, they might say, Well, it's a wonderful sunny day. Well, there are differences between countries, and,、uh, but what we do know about well being indicators is they differentiate between people very well within a country. So, certainly, you know, the most unhappy people in Britain will be scoring much lower than the people who are most happy. International comparisons get us into different trickiness, but,、um, but a lot of them make sense. I mean, for example, the lowest scoring country internationally is Zimbabwe. You know, that seems to make some sense to me. The highest scoring countries are、uh, Denmark. Uh, Norway, Switzerland, and then Costa Rica. Costa Rica is very, very interesting. You know, people say, oh, you know,、uh, you just said, oh, it's sunny and it's whatever, and it's sort of, it's a cultural thing. Well, I mean, they're, they're between Guatemala and Nicaragua. They're not an, inter- they're not an easy ge- geopolitical region. And Costa Rica has no army, it's quite peaceful, very equal society. So there are lots of reasons. You know, they've invested a lot in healthcare, social systems. So there's lots of reasons why Costa Rica does well. And I think those are very interesting. The sort of social determinants. Well being is very, very interesting. But the times they are a changing, and all over the world, the public affairs agenda is ripe for embracing new policies on well being now. 
should the National Health Service, some might say a national sick service, be a national well-being system instead? Nick Marks again. And so we now know that you know Cameron has firmly put well-being on the agenda. It's not GDP which matters to everybody anymore. Work, home life balance, all of those things. But but you know, is this, if you like, a new era for social policy that we're not just thinking of the pound in our pocket in Wilsonian terms anymore? Um, I personally would hope so. We'll obviously have to see. You know, sometimes things come as fashions in uh, in, in policy and, and, and they go later. But there's lots of evidence this is not just about Cameron. You know, we have the OECD doing stuff on this. We have uh, the European uh, Commission doing stuff on Beyond GDP and on well-being and European statistics agencies doing. So actually the, um, Sarkozy has done this commission, which the Stiglitz uh, chaired. So there's lots and lots of stuff going on here. So I don't think it is flash in the pan. I think it will have to prove itself. You know, both the measurements and the discourse of policy would need to would need to prove themselves. Um, I, I, I obviously I, I founded a whole area of work here at New Economics Foundation about this very question: and what would policy look like if well-being was its aim? And I think well-being possibly could refresh the whole way we think about policy, and it would change it quite dramatically over a twenty-year period if we took it seriously. And so there'd be more work-home-life balance. I mean, all parties are now putting that on the agenda. We've seen that progress up. Uh, there'd be issues of, of lifestyle, our environment, um, you know, how we travel to work, those t- or how long we spend travelling to work. Those type of indicators will become serious political issues in the future. Well, those are some, but I mean, I think you're talking quite marginally at all of those ones. I think, you know, more fundamentally, we should restructure the financial system that puts people ahead of profit you know, uh, we have a lot of people who are, who are financially excluded. We have, um, we have, um, you know, our banking system basically for the sake of uh, people in the industry rather than actually serving their communities, not delivering social or environmental value, only profits. So, you know, I think there's, there's lots and lots of things. Schooling would change. You know, how would schooling change if it was about curiosity, if it was about life philosophies rather than just knowledge stuffing? Health services would change. I mean, at the moment we've got a we've got a we've got a sickness service, an illness service. How would actually a well-being system be? These would be dramatically different, and the built environment would be different. You know, why is it that you know the architecture is sexy and public planning is boring? Public planning should be at the heart of a well-being policy. How do we create spaces? Why are our high streets just commercial spaces? Why shouldn't they be well-being spaces? You know, that we actually connect with other people, that we learn things, that we, you know, uh, you know, these are really really critical issues, and I think. I think if we really took this seriously, it would change everything. And and just finally, because you've been generous with your time, um, changing everything. Do we know what makes people happy and what doesn't make them happy? People talked about relationships and family. Are those the indicators? You mentioned the big things of the, the systems in which we live, the banking systems, the political systems. But, you know, it does come down to those personal relationships sometimes. Yeah, I, we, we did a piece of work for the Government Office of Science on what's the equivalent of five fruit and vegetables a day but for well-being. And they are connect, which is our social relationships are really critical to our well-being. The next one is be active. The, you know, passivity is bad and physical activity, you know, gets the blood flowing and actually it's the fastest way out of a bad mood to do your physical activity of choice. It doesn't have to be quite as strong as sweaty exercise. The next one is take notice, which is about being engaged in the world, noticing, noticing things that are beautiful actually being moved by things, but also noticing things that are coming up for you. The fourth one is keep learning, which is curiosity is really good for us. And it could be non-formal learning in, in lots of ways. And the fifth one is give. 
giving is really, really good for our well-being and also it kickstarts other people's well-being. So those five things of connect, be active, take notice, keep learning and give are the sort of things we know generate well-being. And, and if people took those into their personal life, if people li- delivering local policies took them in, I think we would change, we would change Britain for the better. So is Nick Marks outlining a utopia, one where even the financial institutions and banks change to give us more control over our lives? Reading the headlines of George Osborne's budget, you could be forgiven for thinking that this blue-sky approach to public policy is some light years ahead of the rest. Job losses, library closures are closer to home for most of us. The BBC's Claudia Hammond, who chaired the Question Time debate, measuring national well-being, what matters to you, says over £20,000, money doesn't make you happier. But she admits it might be tricky to progress the well-being survey into social policy at the present time, even though David Cameron has announced it is now to be measured with plans to introduce a well-being index this year. I think that something is growing up around well-being and there's been this thing building up for the last decade now and different governments have been interested in it. It's not as if it's just a conservative thing and then it is actually now going to be measured and I think there are many questions to be raised about how it should be measured and what will actually be done with it but I think the fact that it's being tried is a good thing. I think well-being does matter and we should take notice of it. And do you think that at a time when people are experiencing job losses, we're in an economic climate of cutbacks, we've had the budget today, a little bit of petrol, but people aren't feeling that optimistic or happy about life. How can the well-being debate sort of inject some life back into it? I think it's interesting because it is a very interesting time politically to decide to look at something like well-being because you could argue, well, if you want to keep well-being high, then don't have any cuts at all because we know that job losses reduce your well-being. So in that case, get rid of all the cuts. And this is where the question lies about whether policymakers will actually take any notice of what is said in the you know, well-being survey and what happens. Um, but I think it is, it is worth measuring. And the big question is whether anyone takes any notice of, of what's measured. And do you think the measurements are accurate? I mean, can you measure between people of social classes, people in work, people out of work? It's all very well for people who've got a regular income to say money doesn't make you happy. But if you've lost your job, you're clearly unhappy. Um, the same with measuring between nation states, people living in different climates. Surely you can't compare and contrast. Money doesn't make you happier once you've got a certain amount, which tends to be a sort of average of about... About twenty thousand pounds, fifteen thousand to twenty thousand pounds a year. If you lose your job, obviously you haven't got that income at all, and that definitely does lower people's well-being. But once people earn more than, say, twenty thousand pounds, earning twenty-five rather than twenty doesn't substantially make a difference to their well-being. But of course, it does. If you haven't got money at all, it definitely makes a difference. Change, change, change. Relax, feet up. What can really be achieved for us through focusing? public policy on our well-being. Claudia Hammond again. Now, if you were to paint a blue skies picture of the well-being debate, you talked about it rising up the agenda, indeed it has, over the past decade. Where would it go in, in the next few years? What are we likely to see change? Social policy, the measurement of these so-called soft indicators being integrated into social policy, us all having 
a bit more time to ourselves, a bit fewer miles to commute to work. I would really like it if the wellbeing agenda, you know, did rise up the agenda and if people really took notice of it and if policymakers really took notice of it and did try to do the things that make us happy. I'm sceptical about whether they actually will because I think they feel and maybe they have to always put GDP first and so I'm not sure how much in the long term they will really be prepared to change policies on the basis of what makes us happy. I'd like them to but will they do it? So if we all said we wanted to be paid as much as Fred Goodwin was or that actually uh, we don't want to live in in a state where the financial sector controls our, our lives so much. Do you think they'd take note of if you like these bigger institutions of the state within which we live? I think it's quite a lot to ask for them to actually take notice of it and to actually do big policies around that. And I mean, that would mean at the moment not doing any cuts that lead to job losses because job losses definitely decreases your well-being. And not but closing they, libraries. And not closing libraries and not doing any of those things and, and basically stopping the cuts. But they feel they've got to do the cuts in order to reduce the deficit. And so they're going to do that regardless of what happens to well-being. And just finally, a personally curious question. Why have have you, uh, Claudia Hammond, championed the well-being debate? Why is it so special to you? I've been uh, studying the research that's been done... Sorry, I've been studying the research that's been done on emotions for a while. I I wrote a book about the science of emotions and and just got really interested in how there has been loads of research done on emotions and we could be putting these things into practice. And so I think it's very interesting to watch, to see how it could be done, whether it's done the right way and whether it makes a difference. So how can that National Wellbeing Index make that difference to our lives in what are troubled economic times? The Office of National Statistics has launched a nationwide debate to help us understand the key features of national well-being or in simple language, what matters to us. We know that objective measures such as health, education, employment and crime matter, but there's an increasing understanding of those subjective influences too. Things like how we experience our lives, how happy and fulfilled we are, or perhaps just commuting 10 minutes less in the day and having more time to help our kids with their homework. David Halpin, Director, Behavioural Insights Team, Cabinet Office, and Professor Andrew Gamble of the University of Cambridge say subjective well-being measures are empowering citizens and there's not too much to fear from this big brother top-down approach to our happiness. There's an agreement across a number of countries that there are limitations to what GDP does and does not capture. And there are a number of things which are reasonably well rehearsed now, but that doesn't capture well some ecological things about something comes to capital. There are classic examples around if you have a tsunami, but actually it drives up GDP on the the way it's measured right now because your houses are destroyed. (laughs) That doesn't count, and yet when they're rebuilt, that does count. So there are a number of omissions from it, and one of them, as identified by Stiglitz and also identified by um, analysts in the UK, includes subjective well-being measures. Um, the next question, of course, is why would it be consequential? You touched on policy. Um, the, the sense is, well, first we have to see where this road would lead, but um, if you looked at a broader basket of measures when you're trying to think about progress, then are there some things that it would lead you to put more emphasis on, such as relationships? And you talked about people having time to do the homework with their, their kids. Um, 
you know, the difference an extra hour's commuting makes to our lives. These are very much, if you like, soft policy options. Do you think we're going to see them integrated into the mainstream political, political agenda more in the future? Well, um, the fact is at the moment there's often not enough data or information to use it in formal policy analysis. But um, as it comes through, it's not just about government using this data. Actually, it's for all of us to use it in everyday life. And that's the interesting, the interesting empowering aspects of it. If, if it, you know, We have to make all kinds of choices about where we live and where we work. And, um, and it's fascinating and important for us to have more insight into, well, what will that mean? How will we feel? Will we be pleased with the decision that we made in a year or two or five years' time? And so it actually is a way of informing citizens themselves, so not just for government. And, and if we go to you, Professor Gamble, um, you said the debate is a very powerful one coming at the present time, and perhaps much of, lots of people might be feeling economically insecure and, and losing uh, their jobs. Why is it powerful? Well, I think because uh, um, all the political parties have become interested in well-being, I think what's new is, is as David says, the... Uh, the idea of subjective well-being. I mean, governments have always have always considered non-market factors in in the past. Um, what's uh, what's really new is actually trying to um, find some measures of happiness, measures of subjective well-being, and integrate them into into policy. And it it fits with a, a, a general search by governments to do more than just a. Um, a top-down process of, of policy formation. As, again, as David was saying, it, the, it, it's actually trying to develop forms of, of information which can be made available to citizens so that citizens themselves are empowered to become the agents. Um, but but in empowering the citizens to become the agents, you know more about us. It could be interpreted, as you said in, in your talk, but of central planners interfering or governments interfering in our lives? Well, I think that's the, uh, that's the criticism that, that, that some people make of it. They see it as a, um, a, another way by which government, government gets another um, set of, of policies which actually come from, from the top. But I think that um, I think there's more things than that going on here. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously that is a, a, a that is one risk, but the um, I think there is a genuine interest in finding ways in which um, government can become more decentralised. And this, these sort of measures of well of subjective well-being, um, the point is that individuals are being asked to actually construct them. I mean, actually to tell. Uh, um, the people doing the surveys what actually matters most to them and that's the interest that the, 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 the additional knowledge that is gained from that is actually very useful to the individuals themselves it, and it's a way of a society actually understanding more about itself and therefore potentially adopting measures and, and behaviour which actually helps to uh, um, helps to improve well-being and that's that is a very you know it's, it's a challenging vision but it's also really quite an exciting vision if it could be pulled off but wait a minute time to reflect surely there must be a downside to governments holding all this new information about us on their records and how new are these ideas 
Didn't that social reformer, Jeremy Bentham, say something similar once? Professor Andrew Gamble, then David Halpin again. But it's not a sinister 1984 vision in the sense people aren't going to talk about their ill-being and if politicians and political parties know more about us, surely they're going to use that information to get us to vote for them at the next election. You know, it's a circular well, argument, isn't it? Well, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the safeguard against that is that the knowledge is widely available. Um, and, and clearly, if, if government was just collecting this knowledge secretly and then developing manipulative strategies, that would be very undesirable. So it has to be an open, uh, pluralist process. But if it's that, then you know, there are the, the safeguards are there. But, but David, at one time it might have seemed impossible that we would have had a behavioural insights team in, in the, the Cabinet Office. That shows how far this happiness and well-being agenda ha- has been, if you like, mainstreamed these days. Well, no, to be clear, the behavioural insight team doesn't mainly do anything on well-being. I mean, um, a lot of it is to do with most policy has strong behavioural components, be it whether we recycle or um, whether we walk to school, whether you commit crime or whether you look after your health or not. And so that isn't just to do with well-being. And there are lots of insights that come from the um, psychology and economics which have strong um, policy relevance. And you might say nudging us to these better lifestyles in the future. In, in terms of the measurement, do you trust the, the measurements of well-being? And where do you think this debate is going to go in the future? Well, it's been for national statisticians to develop some robust measures, and that's partly the point. Also to your question earlier about you know, government manipulation, it's important that it stays independent from government and, um, and the data goes to the public domain. So... Um, can it be measured robustly? I mean, the wider academic literature says yes, it uh, it is, and um, it looks like a lot of these kind of measures have been developed. They they match up with what other people's judgments of whether someone is happy or not, um, or satisfied with their life. Um, so there's lots of evidence, and they and they sort of behave in ways that you think they might do. So I think the measurement issue is perfectly crackable. And, and uh, Professor Gamble, do you agree with that? Have you got any concerns about this well-being debate, and where do you think it will lead to? Well, I don't. I don't think it's. You know, it's not clearly not the whole answer for public policy. Um, but it. Uh, it. I, I think. I think where it where it will lead is that uh, it, it. It does mean there's, that there will be a more intelligent conversation about public policy and about uh, um, some of the broader effects of, uh, of of economic growth and of what it is that citizens most most desire and what will make citizens. Uh, um, most happy. I mean, you know, Bentham talked about the greatest happiness of the greatest number and the American um, Declaration of Independence talked about the pursuit of happiness. I mean, these are, you know, the, in that sense, these aren't new ideas. This is what um, modern Western culture has been about for a very long time, but we haven't always been um, very good at focusing upon uh, upon these things so that... Uh, um, and other other factors have come to dominate. So potentially, um, and and of course the, the, the difficulty will always come that there will be there will be trade offs, there will be hard choices. Um, things are never uh, are never straightforward. But the the um, the hope of people behind the well being agenda is that uh, there will be more intelligent policy and more information available to citizens. And you're not at all cynical that a well being debate and the measurement of all this at a time when people were seeing massive cutbacks, job losses, 
do the two or could can the two comfortably sit together? Well, that's up to politicians, really. I mean, they have to show, they have to demonstrate that they can, uh, they can have some hard-edged policies on well-being that actually do make a difference to people. So it's, if, if they just stay at, the, at, at a very general level and, and just choose to use the term well-being to describe um, uh, and, and any policy that they're uh, adopting, then, of course, it won't work. But so it, what it has to be is that they, they have to show that they're prepared to take some hard decisions in actually to uh, improve people's well-being and help, help citizens to, to do so. Well, we'll let you have the final word, David. Is that the challenge for the politicians now, those hard choices and decisions, and what might they be? Well, it's clearly not an either-or with economic growth. I mean, you have to deliver growth and so on. But there are additional questions it certainly raises. We have to make, you have to make real choices about, shall you spend more money on this or less on that? And as far as it can help communities and governments and indeed individuals make those judgments, then that seems a good thing. The Office of National Statistics has put four subjective questions onto the Integrated Household Survey. How satisfied are you with your life nowadays? How happy did you feel yesterday? How anxious did you feel yesterday? To what extent do you feel the things in your life are worthwhile? 200,000 people will have answered these basic questions by March 2012. We know there are usually regional and geographical differences in how people answer questions, and there's also a bit of clustering in the middle at the 7.3 ratings. Professor Felicia Hubbard, Director of the Wellbeing Institute, Jen Beaumont, Office of National Statistics, Simon Learmont, Director of the Executive MBA at Cambridge Judge Business School, are enthusiastic supporters of these new tools of measurement of our well-being. Well-being is also good for the profit margins of business, as Cambridge Judge Business School MBAs have been finding out. Can we begin with you, uh, Felicia, just saying why well-being is important to us as individuals now and important to the politicians too? It's important to us as well-beings because the scientific evidence makes it absolutely clear that high levels of well-being are associated with learning effectively, being productive and creative, having good health and good physiological function, uh, pro-social activity rather than antisocial, and also quality relationships. So we know from the science that all of these things are important. Therefore, well-being is important for individuals. It's also important for society. And that is something that you have personally championed. Are you surprised about how quickly it has, if you like, been mainstreamed, or has it been mainstreamed into social policy now? Um, it hasn't yet been mainstreamed. Um, the first step is that, that um, it's going to be measured, and that's a very fine thing, because until you measure it, you're certainly not going to be able to see how it relates to other things. So I think it's a wonderful first step. And certainly I think there's the intention on the part of government to use wellbeing um, information to inform policy decisions. And Jen, if we go to you, how do we measure it? You said there were questions that, that were asked and, and you know, surveys that have been conducted. What's going on in terms of measurement itself? Well, we measure both subjective well-being and objective um, indicators which may be related to well-being. Um, in particular, the Office of National Statistics has put four questions 
onto the Integrated Household Survey, which means that 200,000 people will have answered that question by March 2012. The questions are about um, how you feel today or tomorrow and how you feel about what you do. So we're getting to the heart of well-being for an individual. And, and in terms of those questions, how reliable are they? Do we know that, that you can compare and contrast individual uh, answers? You talked about those miserable minorities a lot. Um, I think we know that these are stable because they've been used in other surveys. Very similar questions have. Um, so, for example, the Gallup Wellbeing Index, the European Social Survey and um, the Eurobarometer use similar questions. So we know that as an average they do give a stable result. Um, we will be very interested to find out what happens when you have an exceedingly large, large sample so you can drill down to those people who say they're not feeling that their well-being is good. And then, Simon, if we go to you, in terms of the business agenda and the MBA students, then surely it is relevant well-being because, one, people are workers and they're going to want to have more time off and employees who give them more time off are going to attract the best talent. And, and two, it's also going to be part of the consumer experience in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think one of the um, interesting things is business schools for a long time have focused just on... Uh, delivering functional and technical skills um, which aim to make organisations more effective in a particular way. They, they um, help them uh, become more productive, they help them uh, deliver better profits um, and eventually they help boost share prices. But the question here is, is that enough? Uh, we spend so much of our time in organisations. Um, ought we also to be thinking about um, you know, how people are actually... Uh, working on a, on a daily basis are we doing things which actually harm people's well-being are we thinking about um, things that maybe affect negatively communities it's very very important that we take these things into account I think Contrast within countries happy in Harwich or miserable in Manchester are contrasted with other countries too such as happy in Guangdong it might surprise some to know that these comparisons are meaningful despite our significant national differences. Our panellists again, Professor Hubbard, Jen Beaumont and Simon Learmont. And, and if we now turn to you, Felicia, you've championed this debate, you're passionate uh, about this debate. Tell us a little bit about the differences between well-being in, say, the UK and France. Do, can we sort of measure national temperaments in that way? Well, I think the, the, the national differences are actually very important because it's all very... It, 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 it's, it's very important to look at differences within a country, as, um, as Jen from Office for National Statistics was saying. We need to look at who is um, functioning well within a country, who isn't, and try and understand that. But equally, we do need to place our country in the context of other countries. And yes, we've, um, we've been doing some work with the European Social Survey, which does look at a whole range of measures of well-being and finds that if you take the headline measure, if you aggregate these different measures, there are some very clear trends that are consistent with other um, data that's been shown from other surveys. So Nordic countries always come out on top, Eastern European countries always at the bottom, UK somewhere in the middle. 
But the important thing is, if you actually delve a bit deeper and you look at the individual components of well-being, or some of them that we've identified, the, the national debate will identify others, I, I hope, but if you look at some of these individual ones, then you can see really important differences. So although France does worse than the UK overall on well-being, always does on any measure, they are fantastically high on engagement. They are really engaged in their work, in their leisure. But why they do badly is because they are the worst in Europe in terms of optimism and confidence. It's different in the UK. We are terrible at engagement. We're not engaged in what we're doing. We have very little energy and vitality. So there's something about apathy that needs to be addressed. But, but, but maybe these are just sort of national characteristics to do with our climate. We always say we mustn't grumble and people are too clever by half, the French or something. But, but you know, can you compare and contrast between nations in this way? Or, or shouldn't you just let people be? Why, why delve into this area now? Well, you're quite right. There certainly are um, cultural differences, national differences um, that have an effect. But if the effect of that is that people are not functioning at their best, if they're not developing their full potential, then it is worth looking at it and looking at ways in which they can be encouraged to develop that potential. And, and Jen, in terms of your sort of integrated household survey, I mean, how do you compare geographical differences? People living in a city might feel very differently to people living in, in the country, just within one nation state, for instance. Well, we will certainly be looking at inequalities and we are hoping to look at local authority level, perhaps only high levels, and also at um, different groups of people to see who are more or less feeling that they have high levels of well-being. Um, and I think that's one of the major advantages, that we may be able to identify those people whose well-being could be improved considerably. And do you think, Simon, in the future for MBA students, they might come and have modules not on economics or GDP, but lectures on well-being? Isn't that going soft? Well, no, I think already actually in programmes like the Executive MBA, they do. We don't just focus on these functional technical things. What we, what we hope to, uh, to achieve with a lot of our students is, is a, um, an, a, a, we, we hope to create an environment where they're thinking about the impact of their behaviour on others. We're ha- helping them to think about um, effective teams, you know, how they actually, the social relationships that they create within organisations. All these things seem to me to be absolutely critical. The problem is, for too long, I think they've been justified purely on the basis of um, uh, helping organisations become more productive or more profitable or whatever. I, I've, I really do think that you know the debate with this new, with these new survey questions is shifting, and I think that's the important thing. What it's what it's doing is it's recognising that these things are, are important in their own right. You know how people function well-being of, of, of individuals, the well-being of society in, its, in their own right are important things. And, and you said well-being is good for the bottom line. Just explain that. Well, I think there's a lot of evidence, for example, that shows, uh, for example, people who have a, a, a strong sense of autonomy in their work are highly motivated and, and, and are more productive. That's great. I mean, I think, you know, there is a business case there to be made. But is that enough? That's my question. I mean, I, I, I think we ought to appreciate well-being in its own right. And you said, Jen, that we're, the surveys are asking us, you know, how satisfied we are with our lives, how happy, how anxious, what things are worthwhile, and that we all say that 
we come out at about 7.3. You know, is, is there a sort of merging towards the centre on these in, issues? I think that's a, a clear issue, is that the average for the UK often doesn't tell you much about individuals in the UK, which is why I was talking earlier about in, inequalities and inequities, because the, the two things are really important. Um, that we, we do need to know, um, one, what the drivers of these are, I mean, uh, and two, how it partitions across the UK, the residents of the UK, and, and whether it's um, miserable in Manchester or uh, happy in Harwich or whatever, sorry, I'm being alliterative now, um, or whether it's, um, you know, a miserable mother or a happy mother or whatever. It, it's just... Um, that we don't have the wherewithal to do that in, at the moment. This new science of well-being relies on our engagement too. It's not something that's being done to us, but for us. Hubbard, Beaumont and Learmont again. And Felicia, you were saying we need the input of people to tell us what makes them happy and maybe vitality, the quality of, of their relationships. So again, going over to these, these soft outcomes, these soft factors, rather than the pound in your pocket, rather than GDP and economics. Yeah, because I think people have a really good idea of what makes their life feel worthwhile and how well life is going. And I think we do need to, to talk to people about what that does mean for them. It's a new science. The experts don't yet agree on what the components of well-being are. And therefore, it's a terrific time to have this national debate and get the input from the lay public. And, and do you think, just finally to all of you, that we are at a turning point in how we view how politicians create happiness for us, that, you know, it's been since post-war economics, GDP, growth, growth, growth. Might people just say, we'll have an extra day's holiday or, or you know, um, we're going to help you get on better with your colleagues, we're going to, to mentor you on your relationships at home. Is something changing? I hope something's changing, but it's not about government making it better for us. It's, it's about us understanding more about the drivers of well-being and government creating the conditions whereby well-being can be increased. Is something changing, Jen? It feels like it from, my, from working in, in the Office for National Statistics because I don't think we've ever moved quite so fast <laughs> to make changes in statistics. Um, and I think it's... Um, as I said, I think, during the earlier debate... If you t say, what I'm, is what I'm doing worthwhile? I'll say, yes, 10 out of 10. Absolutely. I think everybody feels that. And people want to be engaged in what they're doing, yeah, don't they? Want. But it's wonderful to come out here and say, please, come and tell me what you want, <laughs> what you think's important. OK, Simon, so it's not just about our wages. It's about us being engaged in the activities, having colleagues we trust, the whole if you like, gamut of personal relationships. Yeah, no, I, I think it is. I, I, I mean, I, I think it's no coincidence, really, that this debate is um, kind of finding life right around the world. I mean, the People's Congress, I think, a couple of weeks ago in China, focused on, you know, whether GDP ought to be the one measure that they, uh, that, that they use. There's, there's a piece in The Economist about happy Guangdong, I think, um, Stiglitz in, in France, you know, Eurostat is looking at these things, the OECD has run big conferences on these things. It, it really is no, no coincidence, I think, that, that 
both developed and developing economies are, 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 are taking the measures of societal progress um, very, very, very seriously. And I, I think it's not enough now just to focus on GDP. Final last word from this year? No, I think Simon, Simon put that beautifully. Um, there's definitely recognition that GDP isn't enough that how people experience their lives is really what matters. GDP is a means to an end, and the end is well-being. So that wonderful first step of measuring our well-being to inform policy decisions might just help us all to sit up, take note, and do those five things which will make us all much, much happier. Connect, be active, take notice, keep learning, give. Measuring national well-being, what matters to you? Cambridge Judge Business School and the Wellbeing Institute debate set the tone for our joint futures that are just beginning to dawn for all of us. So pack your bags and head for the new utopia, Costa Rica. But you'd better pick up the paycheck first.